Please stand for the reading of the Gospel. It's the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. The Gospel of the Lord. Please have a seat. Good evening. My name is Liz Gray, and I am the vicar here at Incarnation. I'm so glad that you are with us worshipping here this evening. It's been a busy couple of weeks. The week before last, um, I had the opportunity to go to two conferences in one week. And the first one I had been invited to was on church planting. And I was there partly to give my perspective as a female church planter in a world which is often fairly male-dominated. It was fascinating to go and learn, though, from many others about the ways that they were planting churches and the things that they were doing. Between us, Morgan and I are getting a good lot of experience at the moment in contact with other church planters, as he's also doing a course in church planting for six months, and we're all learning so much from that as well. The second conference I went to, and I went with um, Maritza and Jeff and Nancy, was called New Wineskins, and this is a huge Anglican missions conference which happens every three years in North Carolina, and we had a good representation there. But there's something deeply humbling and inspiring about being amongst 1,200 people for four days who have one objective only, and that's to talk about missions, to talk about the message of Jesus, to talk about the way that God is moving around the world. And we heard extraordinary stories of things which are happening in real time now, stories of conversions, stories of healings, stories of miraculous resuscitations. We also heard, though, about imprisonment, and torture, and interrogation, and death, as our world chooses how it's going to respond to the good news that Jesus is alive, that God became incarnate through Christ, the sinless man who died for our sins, that Christ who rose and was reunited with his Father eternally in heaven, leaving his Holy Spirit for us to guide and shepherd us, and commanding us to go into all the world to make disciples. And this question of how we go in 22204 today to obey this injunction is at the forefront of so many of the decisions that we make here at Incarnation. What does it mean for us to go out? As we heard, and we're going to look at Peter, who he went out. What does it mean to go out like that? How will we tell people around us? And these questions are with us every day as we make decisions, as we think about what kind of community we want to be. And so we're going to spend some time now, first of all, just going through and looking at the story of Peter in Acts. So last week we talked about the conversion of Saul, and now we're kind of (coughs) leaping back to what is Paul up to. Well, first of all, the context in verse 31 So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. 
And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This verse, I think, comes in reminding us that Saul, who has been such a hard man in persecuting Christians, has converted. And surely that conversion was part of the reason why peace was now coming to the church, as he himself took the pressure off. But to be honest, for the early church, persecution was always just around the corner. So this peace came in a hard context, as the church was learning dependency on God through the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I wonder what that word comfort kind of summons up for you. If I stop and just think, what does comfort mean? I actually go back to being terribly young, maybe, maybe two, and sitting actually on my father's lap, and he used to wear this black mohair sweater, which was really soft, and it was a really safe place. Bizarrely, if you know my story, um, later on it turned out not to be so safe, but at that time he was safe, and it's a strong, good memory. I wonder if you've got a place where you go to when you hear the word comfort. What might it look like for you to be comforted by the Holy Spirit? What would it look like for him to take you in your place of pain and comfort you? Bearing in mind that the comfort of the Holy Spirit is never dependent on what we've managed to achieve that day. It's simply an expression of God's love for you. It's a comfort that brings peace. And if you don't know what it means to be comforted by the Holy Spirit, we have a prayer team which meets at the back of the church after uh, communion. You're welcome to go straight back there. Let them pray for you. Let them pray for you to know what it means to experience that comfort. But let's move on. That reference in verse 31 to the church is really interesting. It's clear that now this isn't just one little group that it's talking about. It's over three geographical areas. The church is spreading and growing. It's gone way beyond Galilee where the Jesus was and where it started in to these other areas. It's permeated by the sense of walking in the fear of the Lord. I like the way the message puts it. The church had a deep was permeated with a deep sense of reverence for God, and the Holy Spirit was with them, strengthening them. Strength and comfort, aren't these the things that we long for? And in verse 32, and now here's Peter, and Peter went here and there among them all. Something so delightfully casual about that, going here and there. I mean, isn't that like your, your everyday kind of thing? You go here and there, you go to work, you go to the bus stop, you wait in for the Verizon man, you go here and there, you take the kids to the school bus or catch the metro. Here and there, it's just what we do every day. We go here and there. But Peter was paying attention as he went. And so he lands up in this little town called Lydda, which is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. I don't know if you all remember, but a few weeks ago, we talked about the story when Philip converted the Ethiopian eunuch, and then he went up the coast. Commentators think that probably this was one of the churches that he planted as he went up towards Caesarea, where he lands and settles. And so Peter finds this man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, paralyzed. Aeneas, unable to work, unable to function fully in his community. Eight years of lying on his bed. This is such a quirky little story. Aeneas doesn't say anything. He doesn't speak. He doesn't ask to be healed. You don't know if he's a believer. You don't know if he's just somebody casually that Peter stumbled across. But Peter does see him, this small-town man who has no other story about him except that he was paralyzed. 
And now we know his story. Because Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise up and make your bed. No discussion, no evangelistic message, no request for healing even. So what does Peter do? He just copies the things he had seen Jesus do. He personalizes the message. He looks at the sky, he says his name, he makes sure that he knows that there's an engagement between them. And then he makes a declaration of healing, because this is Jesus, in the name of Jesus. All the way through, Peter always, always makes it so clear that it was nothing to do with him, but it was Jesus who healed. Aeneas doesn't say anything. He doesn't say, thank you, or, gosh, I'm going to become a Christian. He just gets up. And from that day onward, he could care for himself. He could rejoin his community. He could have tea with his neighbors. Such a really ordinary kind of story. Just Peter going here and there, declaring that Aeneas is healed, and up he hops, and, and it's all done and dusted. But the effect on the neighborhood is really interesting. It's absolutely electric, because it says all the residents of Lydda and Sharon, these two towns, saw him, and they turned to the Lord, and they believed. What was Peter doing? He was simply going here and there, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and imitating Jesus, healing people, in Jesus' name. And then the outcome is something which he didn't necessarily even predict. It wasn't an outcome he was looking for. He was simply doing the task at hand. The second story is so similar. Again, it reflects a story that you might have read in the Gospels, an account of Jesus healing a little girl. It's very similar in many ways. So we've got this woman named Tabitha, or Dorcas, and this, she's in Joppa, which is about 12 miles away from the last story. Tabitha, casually mentioned as being a disciple, this disciple who was called Tabitha. It's actually the only time a woman is described as being a disciple, but it's just done as if it's a normal thing. One of the women who was faithfully engaged in the early church. And so she's died, and they've washed her. And unusually, they haven't immediately buried her. They've laid her out upstairs. And you get the impression that actually there was enough people around who were aware that Peter was nearby. Because then they send, they send two men to Peter saying, come to us without delay. So Peter comes. And the widows all standing around showing the tunics and garments. And it's probably even the tunics and garments that they're wearing. The things that Dorcas had made. But they're obviously <coughs> making a little bit too much noise for Peter. And he puts them out. And the next thing he does is he kneels. Again, Peter wanting to be really, really clear about this. He was not the one who was coming to heal Dorcas. Jesus was going to be the one. And so Peter calls out. He kneels down and he prays. He prays intentionally to Jesus. And then he turns to the body and says, Tabitha, arise. And she gets up. And yet again, there's a huge outpouring of faith amongst the neighborhood. People turning and believing in the Lord. So just as it did for Jesus when he healed people, miracles were happening and were, people were growing in their faith. And then Peter just stays on with Simon, the tanner, an unclean profession, but not something that bothered Peter. So let's just have a little look at this. There are some things that we can notice here. The way that Peter prays for Aeneas, who is healed, and for Dorcas or Tabitha, who is resuscitated. Note that Peter prays. The local Christians don't pray. The other apostles don't pray. The other disciples don't pray. Peter does. And so often we want to identify with Peter. We want to be like Peter, raising people from the dead. And, and in many ways, that is what we're aiming for. But to be honest, 
I don't come across that many dead people in my life, um, or even paralyzed ones, and probably you don't either. So we could just dismiss this story and say, well, that's not going to be our experience. We're not going to have to be put in that situation. Let's just marvel at how God was working through Peter. Interesting, but perhaps irrelevant. Well, of course, not at all. I think there are at least three things that we can learn from this passage. The first one is that we can learn to pray like Peter and to ask to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit. And we can call out the gifting of others. And then finally, we can weep and rejoice. So first of all, we can pray like Peter does. Peter, as I said, reminding everybody that it's not him that heals. He's the one who's going to call on the power of Jesus. He asks God what to do in the situation. In our gospel reading tonight, Jesus reminded us that we only need the faith of a mustard seed. There was an evangelist called Smith Wigglesworth, and he put it beautifully like this. He gave this challenge. He said, Christians, live ready. If you have to get ready when the opportunity comes your way, you'll be too late. Opportunity doesn't wait, not even while you pray. You must not have to get ready. You must live ready at all times. Be filled with the Spirit. That is, be soaked with the Spirit. Be so soaked that every thread in the fabric of your life will have received the requisite rule of the Spirit. Then when you are misused and squeezed to the wall, all that will ooze out of you will be the nature of Christ. And that's true, perhaps, when we are misused and pushed to the wall, but that should be true, too, when we just put in a situation where there is someone who has need. Someone which is something which is way beyond our capacity in any direction to deal with. When we need the resources of heaven to come because we are totally out of our depth. When we long for Jesus to heal our friends, we need to be soaked and comforted and led by the Holy Spirit as we exercise what may only be our tiny amount of faith. And as we do so, it will grow. You know, in the West, we're so privileged with science and medicine that there's so many things around us that we can turn to when, we get un- when we're unwell. And perhaps our defense and assumption of their efficacy had led to us gradually losing some of the language of faith. I was thinking about, you know, it's a bit like when you learn a language. Well, when I learn a language, I start with great zeal and enthusiasm, and I learn some vocab, and then I don't use it. You should hear my Turkish. I've got like three words now. It just goes down the steep incline. And perhaps exercising our muscles of faith is a little bit like that as well. If we're not using the vocab of faith, our muscles get kind of flabby. We forget the vocab to use. And so I would encourage you tonight to think about your mustard seed of faith, to think about the situations you're going into, and to ask God to help you to exercise those muscles as we intercede on behalf of others. And so we can learn to pray like Peter in faith for God to move. And secondly, I do really appreciate the fact that these disciples and the apostles didn't pray for healing themselves, that they sent for Peter. They knew that he had the faith for this kind of adventure, for this kind of exercise of reaching out over these lives. And so they just actually said, you come and do it because you're better at this than we are. And there's something about recognizing the gifts of other people in our community, which says, okay, together we are going to find who has the gift in this community to step into whatever it is, to not expect that it's all about me or you or him or her. 
So I enjoy the fact that the disciples called Peter. May we be together equipped by the Holy Spirit. May we know what each other's gifts are. May we be very conscious of who should be in which position as we move forward. And finally, actually, there are days when I can most of all just identify with Dorcas's friends. The people who just stood there and cried, they just identified with that they were sad. They didn't even really know what to do. They just cried. And other stuff happened around them. People leapt into action. The people who weren't crying kind of sorted it out and got on with it. And then once Peter had raised her from the dead, they rejoiced. Isn't that glorious? Nobody, they're not ca- sort of castigated for their role in this. They're just told. They, they wept and they rejoiced. So how do we respond in faith to the world around us as we go here and there? Well, I think we take our mustard seed of faith. And as we go here and there, we need to pay attention, that we need to be alert and quick to respond with obedience to the call of God on our lives. Peter, like Philip a few weeks ago, didn't stop to question. He just got moving. He just went where he was called to go. So as you go here and there, pay attention to where you are. As you go here and there, pray for God to be at work, to move through yourself or through others. Look for those opportunities. And as you go here and there, if you're not sure what else to do, weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Our gospel reading concluded tonight. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we were unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that there are tasks for us to do. There are places you want us to engage in this world and go forth and pray and ask for your intervention. There are things that we need to pay close attention to. We thank you that we go as a community, that we go with everybody having different gifts and skills and abilities, different insights, different ways of seeing the world. Will you help us to be ready to be prayerfully and emotionally engaged and to step into the needs around us with a message of your love as you grow and stretch our faith. Amen.